open your Bible to Philemon. Philemon is a thin little book just before you get to Hebrews. Go to Philemon, and we're going to start in verse 8 today. <clears throat> for this reason, <clears throat> excuse me, for this reason, although I, Paul, have great boldness in Christ to command you, Philemon, to do what is right, I appeal to you instead on the basis of what, everybody? Love. As you'll see in your bulletin notes, you got a bulletin when you came in, open it up. On the left-hand side, you'll see that God teaches us here to do what's right because of love. This is an amazing concept. Uh, just take the first part, do what's right. <clears throat> Have you ever been in a miry, confusing situation? Sometimes it is absolutely befuddling to figure out what to do. So I've watched people. You know what people do when they're in situations like that? They try very hard to consider the outcomes. They try to weigh options. They try to examine all the angles. And all the while, the scriptural answer is very simple. Just do what's right. Don't do what makes you feel good. Don't do what you think is going to lead to the best outcome. Don't do wrong and think that's going to somehow turn out right. Just do right, Dudley. This is a missing element in the lives of far too many Christians. For example, a brilliant church planter that I'm advising a uh, really great, great guy. He wanted to make sure that non-Christian sinners were welcome at their church, which is biblical. He was zealous that there be no impediment to the gospel. However, some of his language was fuzzy. His verbiage was especially watered down regarding truth and how it sets people free. So I asked him this question. I wrote him and I said, hey, you asked me to review all these documents. Let me just ask you this. After they trust in Jesus, do you want people to act differently and do right? And he said, well, yes, of course. So then I mentioned Philemon, and I suggested he rewrite the church info to be more like Paul. Love all, but also challenge them to do what's right. Paul instructed Philemon to do right, but look at how he did it. He could have commanded, but instead he appealed to the most important motive possible, love. The Christian is controlled by love. This is a major New Testament concept. Uh, in chapter 21 of his gospel, John said, you may be familiar with this, John said, the world could not contain all the information about God the Son, about Jesus Messiah, if it were to be written down in books. It could not even fit on this planet. That is how, how multifaceted, so amazing is the person of Jesus. You couldn't even describe him filling the entire earth, right? And yet, bold genius that he was, John summarized not just God the Son, he summarized the entire triune God with this one word. Uh, read with me, it's actually chapter 4, we've got a typo here, 1 John chapter 4 verse 8, everyone together, 1 John 4 8, God is love. Now, follow the clear logic as John's thinking unfolds in this passage. Uh, chapter 4 of 1 John, God is love. God's love was revealed among us in this way, God sent his one and only Son into the world so we might live through him. Love consists in this, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation is a fancy word. It really means a, a great deal. We'll give a brief summary and say payment, okay, the payment for our sins. Dear friends, if God loved us in this way, we also must love one another. Okay, follow the logic. The uncontainable, indescribable God. The earth could not contain all the books just about God the Son, but in one word, he's love. How did he show love? He showed love through God the Son. We live through him. Ergo, our living should be marked by love. 
Love for the brethren. This is what Paul has in mind in Philemon 9. It's only right for Philemon to act out of love. And this is critically important for any person who wants to follow Jesus. We do what's right by God's family because of love. My dad goes to every one of his grandkids' activities. I mean, this man has traveled to and cheered through more baseball games, plays, football games, volleyball and wrestling matches than I can count. Paul is always there. And he's not there because he was asked to be or forced to be. He is there because he loves God and he knows God loves him and that makes him love his family. That's John's logic. That's Paul's logic lived out. Because God loves us, we love him, and we are motivated by love toward each other. And that love is to be our motivation even when the people of our family are decidedly unlovable. Even when the ones we love are homeless or smelly, or rude, or stuck up. We are propelled by love. Think, think, there is no human whose sin, whose sinful grotesqueness is anywhere near as unlovable to you as your sins are to the perfectly holy God. God is perfect. That means that you're one little blemish, even if you only had one, which I Sincerely doubt. Your one little tiny mark is more off-putting to holy God than any level of ugliness is compared to you. This is why people can smile and serve others in extremely hard circumstances. Remembering God's love toward us is what allows Christians to build relational bridges with others, looking for opportunities to bless and not to judge. Love is why my dad is at every game. Even on those occasions when his teenage grandkids become stinkers and they ignore him for their cool friends, he is there, smiling. Now, most believers struggle with this, and our failures usually expose a deficiency in one area or the other, right? Either we tend to not do right, or we tend to do right for lesser reasons than love. How many of us here are more likely to falter in always doing right? We're more likely to struggle with always doing what's right. Raise your hand if that's you. Come on, rebels, raise your hand. Well, you won't because you're rebels, but uh, raise your hand. All right, good. How many of us, we we tend to do right, but it's out of fear or, or legalism or obligation or to get applause, anything less than love? Raise your hands, you Pharisees. Raise your hands. All right, that... That's, you raised both hands. That was good. Um, God is calling us to something different here. Okay, this is not good deeds done for, for Pharisaism. This is not not doing good deeds rebellion. He calls us to goodness predicated on love. Read 9 through 12. Go to verses 9 through 12. I, Paul, as an elderly man, and now also as a prisoner of Christ Jesus, appeal to you for my son Onesimus. I fathered him while I was in chains. Once he was useless to you, but now he's useful both to you and to me. I'm sending him back to you as part of myself. With love established as a driving force, God's apostle now encourages Philemon to use your power. There are two ways that Philemon and each of us is meant to use his power for good. First, he used his power the way Paul does, beyond limitations. Paul is elderly although not as old as he will be in his last letters. Now, in in the Mediterranean first century cultures, age was a badge of respectability. Paul likely mentions this in part to command respect, but there's more to it than that. Paul, Paul is also stressing that he is working past the normal limitations of an old person. The the closest modern parallels I can find are in the densely urban sections of Japan. In the densely urban sections of Japan, as best as I can understand it, elderly people are treated with great respect, as is the norm in Japanese culture. 
However, the aged are also increasingly seen as a burden. I don't know if you know this, but the strain of pensions is a huge weight on the Japanese economy, and there is some youthful resentment about that. Further, old age is seen as a limitation in the new Japanese companies, businesses that are faster and leaner and meaner than their predecessors, and thus age, while still respected, is at least partially viewed as a limitation. Paul totally overcomes those perceptions. He uses his power to lead in love. It's a little bit like our wonderful neighbor down the street, uh, Dr. Swindoll. Though he is now considered elderly at 85-something years old, Chuck just keeps on teaching and he keeps on blessing people according to love. We must do the same, whatever our ages. Now, Paul mentions another limitation, imprisonment. The apostle is likely either in Rome or Ephesus, we don't know which, and he's under imperial arrest for spreading the gospel of Jesus. You know, right, Roman imprisonment's very different from ours, but there's one factor that has remained the same throughout the millennia. Prison is, by definition, very limiting. And yet Paul sees past this human veil of constriction. He sees the truth. He is a prisoner only of Christ Jesus. His life is bound up in Jesus, and that is the ultimate freedom. This is what Stephen Curtis Chapman had in mind when he, was, when he wrote his wonderful poem, Free. Do you know this poem? He wrote and said, uh, the sun was beating down inside the walls of stone and razor wire. As we made our way across the prison yard, I felt my heart begin to race as we drew near to the place where they say that death is waiting in the dark. The slamming doors of iron echoed through the halls where despair holds life within its cruel claws. But then I met a man whose face seemed so strangely out of place. A blinding light of hope was shining in his eyes. And with repentance in his voice, he told me of his tragic choice that led him to this place where he must pay the price but then his voice grew strong as he began to tell about the one who he said had rescued him from hell. I'm free, he said. Oh, I've been forgiven. God's love has taken off my chains and given me these wings, and I'm free. And the freedom I've been given is something that not even death can take away from me because I'm free. Jesus set me free. All God's people said, free even beyond the limits of prison. I think Paul would agree. Now, let's be sure to personalize this. That's what Rembrandt did. Look, look, look at the painting up here, this beautiful portrait. Um, the picture I showed you a little while ago was one that Rembrandt painted of St. Paul in prison, right? Almost 40 years later, he repainted Paul in prison, but he put himself in the portrait because he was trying very much to make sure that he applied this text to himself directly. So, my fellow Rembrandts, let's do the same. What are your limitations? Are they physical, mental, are they short-term, are they, are they chronic in nature? Do you feel limited by time? Does, does lack of money trouble you? What about, a, what about a dearth of human resources? Does that seem to constrain you? Right now, think of all the things that you can perceive as holding you down, okay? All right, now, tell me this. As serious as those are, do those limitations mean that you are unable to use your powers for good, yes or no? No, most certainly not. There is no limit to using your powers for good, except that beeping alarm. That might be a limit. Um, now, I know what you're thinking. In response to all that, you're saying in your, in your uh, Sherman accent, but Mr. Peabody, you don't understand. I'm too busy. Life is too hard for me to do all this superhuman beyond limit stuff. Oh, but you're wrong, Sherman. Let me show you. 
Come to the Wayback Machine. Let me, let me show you three things, three things to prove to you that, that you're wrong if you think you're limited in using your powers for good. First, I'd like you to look at this new work. It's called the Fundamental Arts Foundation. It's a wonderful new nonprofit that highlights the work of artists who, get this, they have to labor through mental disability. The mentally ill are among the most isolated members of American society. But the Fundamental Arts Foundation sees past their limitations. This foundation, here's what they do. They grant supplies and, uh, and they show off the work of these gifted, seemingly imprisoned artists. And get this, the Fundamental Arts Foundation was started by a disabled young man who happens to be my son. Mike Broderick was determined to be like Paul. He wanted to use his powers for good, even when the world assumed that he should be isolated, imprisoned, shunned. He wanted to use his powers for good. Here's another recently formed ministry, the Way Alliance. This is a new group whose work is based on this verse. Read it with me. Uh, Psalm 82, verse 3. Everyone together. Vindicate the weak and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and destitute. There may be no weakness as debilitating as fatherlessness. And the Way Alliance exists to help lift that burden. In particular, here's what Way Alliance does. They intervene to help the fatherless who are aging out of the foster care system in Denton and Collin counties in Texas. That means the main counties where this church lives. Do you know this about your counties? In Denton and Collin counties, 25% of our foster students, when they are emancipated at 18, they end up homeless. Another one quarter of those students end up in jail. <clears throat> Way Alliance in response, was founded by Joy Miller. Joy Miller is also a member of this congregation. Uh, Joy's busy. She is herself a student. She is a mom. She is a limited human just like all of us. The people that she cares about, these young people who are aging out of the foster system, they're severely limited as well. But Joy is using her inadequate powers by God's grace. And that means she's shooting past the supposed boundaries of human limits. And by the way, that is exactly what Way Alliance is developing in the young adult's whom they serve. Just one more. I told you I'd show you three. Here's a third one. This is Alan Brody. He's another Christian who's a member of your body here. As experienced teachers, Alan and his wife Sarah became really troubled at the difficulties of educating the children of our homeless population in Dallas. Alan knows that without a strong education, the odds are very high that children of homeless families will become unproductive, even destructive forces in society. Here's, here's the horrible cycle that children of homelessness get stuck in. There's no money for food, so they get sick from hunger. Actually, food is readily available to just about everyone where we live. Uh, hunger is actually far overstated. The problem is it takes a great deal of time and energy to get that food if you don't have money. And so there won't be enough time. It's not so much they're hungry, there's just not enough time to go to school. Because they can't go to school, they get no education. Because there's no education, there's no job and no income, that means that they're going to grow up and they usually very early in life have kids of their own who are born into poverty, and the cycle continues. Alan decided that he should form Hopewell Academy in response to this. This is really cool. It is a private school for the most destitute kids in our area. It, it is a living embodiment of one of my favorite statements by one of my all-time favorite educators. Mortimer J. Adler was probably the greatest educator of the 20th century, in my opinion. And he said this, the best education for the best is the best education for all. And that's what Hopewell is doing. Alan is very limited, folks. He and his wife are teachers. They don't have any money, all right? The students they're trying to work with are certainly destitute, but that has not stopped them from using their powers for good. Folks, whoever you are, 
wherever you are right now, stop and consider this. These are just, these are just three limited members of one little church and, and they are doing amazing things. Imagine what you could do. You, you could choose to love your neighbor, really. To have God's love for you overflow to them. You could serve in a ministry. You, you could encourage some poor overworked church staffer. You could take time to share Jesus. By God's grace, whatever your impediments, you can use your powers for good. All God's people said? Amen. Second trait shared by all three of these new efforts we just examined, they're dedicated to help people society calls useless, right? That's the second point in our notes. It's the header atop the right side of your notes. Use your power on behalf of the useless. This is so cool. Look at this. Onesimos' name, it may be a nickname. We're not sure which. It, it means profitable. It means, it means useful, all right? To emphasize this point, Paul sets up a particularly clever wordplay here based on Onesimos. Verse 11 describes Onesimos saying, once he was useless. The Greek term is akrestos, okay? Onesimos means profitable, useful. Paul uses the term he was useless. Akrestos, simple little language trick. The, the prefix a in, in our language, just like in Greek, they're the same. A means without, okay? So he is without use. He lacks the capacity to be useful. But, but look at what God does. Now a Christian, Onesimos, is euchrestos. E-U, the prefix E-U means good. In fact, it means, it means quite good. It means very good. Okay, so Onesimos, having been born again in Christ, has moved from ah without to you, very good. This is what's so cool. He's not merely Christos. He's not merely Onesimos. He is euchrestos. He is very good for use. That's what the love of Jesus does in human lives. Every single person can move from ah to you. Every one of us, however useless we may feel, can become very useful to God. Paul's own party of supporters in prison proves this. Look, look, at, the letter, look at the letter's final greetings. Um, Epaphras, uh, verse 23, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you. So do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my co-workers. Now that Mark that is mentioned, that's John Mark. He's the cousin of the great early church leader, Barnabas. Barnabas and Paul were partners. They were partners on the first two great mission trips, which changed the world. But on that second mission trip, John Mark got really apparently overwhelmed by all the persecution, and it was pretty thick. It was really rough. And at Perga, at this city here, he took off and ran home to mommy. He was Christos. He was useless. But look at your text. Here he is a number of years later, and... And he's useful again, euchrestos. He's restored to courage by God's grace. And by the way, I do mean courage. That guy who was scared before, he is now helping Paul in prison. Again, prison was different then than now. You had to be supported by people or you starved in prison then. And he is supporting Paul in an era and in a milieu in which anti-Christianity is rampant. And he's standing up boldly. This is a changed person. Now, we don't know the details of John Mark's story, but we do know at least part of how Onesimus became useful as he almost always does, the Lord used people to spark the change in Onesimus' heart. While he was in prison, Paul met Onesimus, and he introduced him to new life in Jesus. God uses people to push useless people to a positive tipping point of euchrestos, of usefulness. One of our elders read J.D. Vance's uh, best-selling book, Hillbilly Elegy, and he passed it on to me. It, it is really good. It's a raw book. It is not intended for children, uh, but it's very insightful. 
J.D. Vance, the author, was himself a Christos. This guy was just another derelict from the slag pile of broken class working homes in America. And, and, yet, uh, and yet now he is a graduate of Yale Law School with a healthy and productive life. He has become Christos, And you know how that change happened? God used people to help him. People who used their power on behalf of a boy who was useless. Um, listen to a little section of the book here. People sometimes ask whether I think there's anything we can do to solve the problems of my community, meaning the working class community. I know what they're looking for, a magical public policy solution or an innovative government program, but these problems of family, faith, and culture aren't like a Rubik's Cube, and I don't think solutions, as most understand the term, actually exist. A good friend who worked for a time in the White House and cares deeply about the plight of the working class once told me, quote, the best way to look at this might be to recognize that you probably can't fix these things. They will always be around, but maybe you can put your thumb on the scale a little for the people at the margins, close quote. There were many thumbs put on my scale, says J.D. Vance. When I look back at my life, what jumps out is how many variables had to fall in place in order to give me a chance. There was my grandparents' constant presence. Despite the revolving door of would-be father figures, I was often surrounded by caring and kind men. Even with her faults, mom instilled in me a lifelong love of education and learning. My sister always protected me even after I'd physically outgrown her. Dan and Aunt Wee opened their home when I was too afraid to ask for help. Long before that, they were my first real exemplars of a happy and loving marriage. There were teachers, distant relatives, friends. Remove any of these people from the equation, and I'm probably screwed. Other people who overcome the odds cite the same sorts of interventions. So, friends, where are you placing your thumb on the scales on behalf of the useless? Our three fellow members are doing just that with their new charities. Now, you and I may not be in a position to lead foundations, but we can do simple, profound things. We Just think of this. We have kids all over every one of our neighborhoods who feel useless. They're from broken homes. They, they struggle in school. They're bullied. Why not build a healthy relationship with that family? Become family friends so you can invite them to VBS or camp in the city or church where they can learn about the life-changing love of Jesus. Or go, go, <clears throat> go with our team on their monthly visit to the nursing home, right? We have a team that goes every month to Prairie Estates Nursing Home. Go, listen to stories, play games with these wonderful elderly people that the world, quite frankly, often treats as useless. Pr participate in one of our showers of blessing. Those are the baby showers that we put on as a church for single moms who have chosen not to abort their child. The possibilities are endless, but the textual point here is imperative. Use your powers on behalf of the useless. Be a part of God's work as he turns a Christos into you Christos. Do what's right. And that means using your power without cowing to human limitations and with restorative investment in the so-called useless. All God's people said, amen. Now read 13 and 14, 13 and 14. I wanted to keep him, Onesimus, with me so that in my imprisonment for the gospel, he might serve me in your place. But I didn't want to do anything <clears throat> without your consent so that your good deed might not be out of obligation but of your own free will. Do all this good without compulsion. As apostle, Paul has the authority to requisition all the resources he needs, but he refuses to use that authority unilaterally. The stated purpose for this actually concerns Philemon. You see, Paul wants his friend Philemon to experience the blessing of willingly doing what is best instead of doing what's right under command. A lot of this concerns eternity, okay? Uh, the, the Bible, you probably know this. The Bible teaches that at the Bema, at the judgment seat of Christ, 
Christians are going to receive rewards. It, it appears that those good things done for good motives are going to be rewarded. But other things, including good deeds that were not done from the right motives, are going to be burned up. This is very likely in Paul's mind as he offers Philemon the opportunity to do good for the right reason. God's leader needs help. Philemon has the resources to assist. It's obvious what's best to do. But Philemon needs to reach that conclusion himself to receive the reward. You, you've almost surely experienced this dynamic even here on earth. I bet you have. But for example, when you have to clean the house because you're told to or because nobody else is going to do it, how does that experience play out? It's drudgery, right? It's just absolutely awful. We grumble. We feel far from God. We tend to complain about these horrible humans that we live with who are just living wrecks of messes, right? However, when you want to clean, the experience is totally different. If I have life group coming over, I'm excited to make the home sparkle for our friends. Last night when I, when I dusted the house and I swept, nobody asked me to. I just wanted to do it because I love my family. It was it was enchanted. It was, it was a, a very fun thing to do. This theme of doing good without compulsion runs through all of Paul's writing. For example, look, look at how this, um, this idea applies regarding, regarding giving money, which is a place where the rubber truly meets the road in our lives. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Remember this. The person who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. The person who sows generously will also reap generously. Each person should do as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly or out of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. Again, it's logical, right? You know the truth. There are eternal rewards that matter much more than anything on earth. Those rewards are opened by imitating Jesus, who sacrificed liberally and willingly for others. That's the kind of giving God loves. Now, the choice is up to you. Decide and act on your decision. How well do you and I do this? How well do we do, we do good without compulsion? I am really concerned about this, in particular for our American culture. And the main problem I see is a massive proliferation of rules. Did, did, did you know the number of official, passed by Congress, official laws on the American code books would almost fill this room to the ceiling? And this is not a small room. But if you add to it all of the unofficial regulations that are done by fiat from all of the executive branch of the United States government, particularly over the last 20 years, if you put those all on paper and you stack them up, it would fill every single building on this campus. Folks, just think closer to home. You, you have homeowners associations that have 75 pages of regulations. <laughs> You're drowning in regulation. Okay, why does this matter? Why is it a problem? Because, as the Apostle Paul points out in Galatians, law always generates a rebellious reaction in sinful humanity. So as the number of rules and ordinances increase, I'm very concerned that our common sense is dying and we're becoming less likely to do good. And even when we do good, we tend to do it only under compulsion, not as people who are constrained by love. I was lamenting about this, about this state of affairs with a friend of mine, and I want to encourage you. He perked me up with this comment. He wrote me and said, Wayne, you're right. Serious forces are working against our capacity to do good for the right reasons. However, you're missing a massive counterforce that exemplifies sacrificial service without compulsion, the United States military. Close quote. I thought about it. I think he has a great point. The U.S. military is all volunteer. It is the most powerful fighting force in the world, and no one is compelled to sign up to serve. They certainly don't do it for earthly rewards, right? 
Just ask any vet here, and they will tell you that free health care at the VA is a whole lot more burden than blessing. It may sound corny, but I have found it to be true. The members of the U.S. military tend to serve because they want to do good. And hopefully that example can motivate us all to live out Philippians, I mean, live out Philemon 13 and 14. And if you want to grow in doing good without compulsion, let me share this with you. I, I highly recommend you download this slide. This is a scripture-based prayer sent to me by a friend of mine, and it is, this is worthy of adoption. I have prayed this many times since he sent this to me. Lord, help me to obey your commands because I love you. To love you because you first loved me and put your love in my heart by your Holy Spirit. To, to not obey to earn your love, although you are pleased when I obey you. To not obey your law to obtain a righteousness of my own self-righteousness. To not compare myself with my brethren or take pride in my obedience. To only obey in love by the power of your Holy Spirit. All God's people said, Amen. Section closes with verses 15 and 16. Let's read those. For perhaps this is why he, Onesimus, was separated from you for a brief time, so you might get him back permanently, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a dearly loved brother. He's especially so to me, but even more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. For all this to happen, for people to do right things for the right reasons, there's two things you got to embrace. Forgiveness and brotherhood. The idea of forgiveness is inherent in this text. I need to give you just a quick reminder about Roman slavery. It was a whole lot more like what we would call indentured servitude than the racial slavery we picture. Uh, Roman slavery was about business. It was not about a false concept of lesser humanity of any particular people groups. Roman slavery was not desirable, okay, but it, it, it could help you earn your freedom. In fact, slavery was often used as a stepping stone to a better life. Look at Doug Greenwald's comment. I, I've used this before uh, in his article, Slavery in Rome. Doug says this, when Rome conquered your part of the world, you became a Roman subject without rights. Thus, if you were a bookkeeper, a physician, a teacher in a conquered territory, you knew becoming a Roman slave was the only pathway for you to eventually buy your freedom and become a freedman with Roman citizen rights. Thus, it is not surprising that many professionals in conquered lands willingly sold themselves into Roman slavery as the only pathway to Roman citizenship and freedom. Close quote. That is exactly Onesimus' uh, situation. Paul calls him doulos. You see that? It's a slave. Dulos is a slave who has willingly bound himself to a master. Thus, Onesimus' flight from Philemon is a serious breach of contract. In essence, the man took Philemon's investment and he fled. And yet, as horrible as that backstabbing is, the gospel requires that Philemon forgive him as Philemon is himself forgiven by God, right? And it also requires that Onesimus learn to accept forgiveness. The Apostle Paul himself had to learn this. He had to learn how to receive forgiveness. It's not easy. You see, Paul was a killer of Christians before he came one. And it took him some time to learn to see the truth that he, chief of sinners, was beloved of God, that he was completely forgiven and could live in God's forgiveness. How many of us struggle to forgive ourselves when we sin? For some of us, it's even harder than forgiving other people. How many struggle to forgive yourself when you sin? Okay, well, then story time, all right? Since some of you struggle with this, it is story time. This is from Bob Goff's wonderful book, Love Does. This is a chapter called uh, Jeepology, okay? <clears throat> a year or two ago, as I was driving home from church, a car came darting out of a side street. It crashed into the side of my Jeep, caught me in front of the driver's side wheel. I didn't have time to react. I couldn't swerve or reach for the fire extinguisher. I didn't even have time to call out to God. The Jeep started a barrel roll, and I went flying like someone was playing cornhole with my body. I'd like to say I had my seatbelt on, but I didn't. I know, Mom. I was thrown out of the roof of the Jeep like a bullet from a rifle. 
I regained my senses sitting upright on the asphalt, my arms propped up behind me like I was watching a ball game at the park on a summer day. The Jeep was upside down 30 feet away and the engine was racing like a phantom foot had the pedal to the floor. Oil and gas were everywhere. Because I'm a guy, I suppose, I just had one thought. Blow up! It's a guy thing. Maybe I just really want to use the fire extinguisher. Alas, the Jeep did not explode. Maybe next time. Lots of other red vehicles started arriving, a fire truck, an ambulance, two kids on red bikes. I started feeling around to do another limb check, everything being operational. I got up, dusted myself off, and walked toward the other car. The other driver was stunned, and her window slowly started lowering. Still clutching the steering wheel, staring blankly forward was a small, frail woman. She was older. That was easy to see. I introduced myself. Hi, I'm Bob. What's your name? The sun woman kept staring straight ahead, fists still clenched around the steering wheel. I, I, I'm Lynn. She stuttered. Lynn, are you okay? I asked, leaning forward a little. Lynn was wafer thin. She couldn't have weighed 100 pounds. I think I'm okay, she whispered. It wasn't surprising this had left Lynn a little stunned. You see, Lynn was 87 years old. She stood five foot nothing on her tiptoes and had been driving home from her senior's exercise class. I tried to make eye contact with Lynn, but didn't have success. I guess I forgot to stop Lynn said, still clinching the steering wheel, the steering forward. That was indeed correct. But who can be mad as someone like Lynn? Lynn turned her head toward me for the first time in our conversation and said, with the seriousness of a grandmother and the surprise of a passerby, young man, do you know that you went through the roof of your car? <laughs> oh, yeah, right that. I told her that's how I get out of the Jeep when I'm in a hurry. Saves me time. I don't have to open the door, swing my legs. I'm a busy guy. I got things to do. I think Lynn expected me to scold her or tell her why she should have been more cautious, but instead, I put my hand on her shoulder. Lynn, I said in a fitting voice, I can't lie. That was the coolest thing that's ever happened to me. She looked up and smiled for the first time. I tried to buoy her spirits by continuing. If there was a ride at Disneyland like that, the line would be a mile long. Can we do it again next week? I mean, we can meet right here, same intersection. I asked if she was okay. She said she was. The police were picking up pieces of my Jeep on a lawn across the street behind a fence down a driveway a short distance away. One of the men from the fire truck helped us swap information. I was fine, so I figured I'd just walk home. Before I left, though, I called over to Lynn again, waved, and said not to worry. A few days later, I got a phone call on my cell phone. Hello? There was nothing at first, just empty silence. Then a brittle and remorseful voice crawled out of the phone. I am so sorry. It was Lynn. Lynn, is that you? Hey, I'm fine, really. Barely a bruise on me. I can't lie. The, the car could use a little paint, but really, don't give it another thought. You don't need to call me, honest. I tried to reassure her without much success, and we hung up. A few days later, I was taking a deposition, and my phone rang again. Same silence, followed by the frail, I am so sorry. Lynn, I asked, honest, it's, it's all good. I'm fine. Really? You don't need to check. How are your grandkids? Really? No need to call. It, it, it was pleasant. And I was pleasant, and we said goodbye as we hung up, but I could tell this was going to keep happening. Lynn couldn't believe that I had forgiven her and moved on. I wondered what to do. I didn't want to change my cell phone number, but I also didn't want to get a call every other day from Lynn. So I hatched a plan. I had Lynn's address, so I called the local florist and had them put together a huge bouquet of flowers and deliver it to Lynn. I wrote a note, had it stuffed inside the flowers, and I asked the delivery person to hang around long enough to report to me on Lynn's reaction. When Lynn came to the door, there was this huge basket of flowers waiting for her. She stood there more stunned than when she had flipped my Jeep. The basket of flowers was nearly bigger than she was, and when she opened the card, she started to well up. The card said, Dear Lynn, it was great running into you. Now stop calling me. <laughs> Bob. I think Lynn got the message. I was fine. I wanted her to be fine too. I wanted her to forgive herself, to realize we all make mistakes. 
I'm glad I ran into Lynn, and I'm glad she kept calling me because it taught me something about faith. It taught me that when God is big enough and loves me enough to say he forgives me, I should actually believe him. I mean, I shouldn't keep feeling bad about all the times I've messed up because that's ignoring what God said, just like Lynn ignored what I said. When I don't trust God's forgiveness, it's kind of like saying I don't really believe he's that good. Lynn made me think I should stop asking God to forgive me over and over when he made it clear he already has. Close quote. That is what Paul wants Philemon to say to Onesimus, and he wants Onesimus to accept it. To do right things from good motives, we have got to embrace forgiveness and embrace brotherhood. Look, in God's eyes, they're all brothers, Philemon, Paul, Onesimus, brethren. That signifies an unbreakable family connection of fellowship and mutual care. And this is one of the most shocking differences about you people, about Christianity. Christians view themselves as one family with a loving common father. Uh, Arthur Ruprecht summarizes really nicely how rare that was. In the pagan religious experience, men feared and appeased the gods. They did not, however, claim they loved them or were loved by them as a motive for men to love one another. Onesimus is a dearly loved brother in the Lord. But wait, there's more. Paul also declares Onesimus a brother in the flesh. Do you see that? Not just the Lord, in the flesh. That's a shocker. Christian brotherhood is so complete, we are in a very real way bound together in one body. Obviously, I don't provide the left leg, but we're one body. This is why Romans 12 says this, verse 5. Read it with me. You take the underlying text. We who are many are one body in Christ. And individually, we are members of one another. Members of one another. We go, to, we go together like shoebop-to-bop. This must be embraced. A, a, a consumer mentality absorbed with what I can get from church, that's not going to cut it. A, a desire to be entertained is going to erode your capacity to do good. We must embrace the fact that we are one body in Jesus. I know that's very hard to do, but by God's grace, it can be done. In fact, if Philemon and Onesimus could pull it off in their environment, surely we can as well. So what keeps you? What keeps each of us from embracing brotherhood? Is it, is it fear of rejection? That's a very common one I hear a lot. Hurt feelings? You had a bad experience? Is that what it is? Is it unreasonable or even unvoiced expectations? Uh, does consumerism or busyness or, or selfishness keep you from engaging as part of the body? Whatever it is holding us back, notice that embracing brotherhood is tied to this passage. That means that alone you and I are incapable of doing right for the right reasons. We need the brethren. Pray with me, please. Lord, I pray for us that we would respond to our need for the brethren, that you would make us like like Onesimus, like Philemon, like Paul. Empower us to do right because of love, to use our power despite limitations, to do good without compulsion, and to embrace forgiveness and the brotherhood. And I pray this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.